from beautiful downtown Sacramento, it's time for Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket This is Spaz, and thanks for tuning in to Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. On this episode, I will be interviewing Andrew Curry from the Curry Cuts label. They've just released the tribute album, White Lace and Promises, The Songs of Paul Williams. This is a great addition to any collection. So we're going to be discussing that release and some of the other things on his label, and you're going to hear little sound bites that will make you tingle. So strap yourself in, because it's time for another episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Fort Bingo Andrew Curry is first and foremost a music fan. However, instead of just sitting in his room and listening to music, he has taken his love and passion and turned it into something that we all have the pleasure to enjoy for years to come. A half dozen years ago, Andrew turned his love of late 70s light rock into a critically acclaimed tribute album entitled Drink a Toast to Innocence. Serving as producer and curator, he managed to bring a group of talented artists together to perform classic songs from the likes of Player, Randy Van Warmer, David Soul, Robbie Dupree, and many others. For the next project on his own Curry Cuts label, Andrew released Here Comes the Rain Again, a tribute to early 80s new wave featuring a host of great modern artists, including The Corner Laughers, Linus of Hollywood, Freedy Johnston, Chris Collingwood, and many others. In 2017, the Curry Cuts label released an exciting CD tribute to the films of Agent 007 entitled Songs, Bond Songs. This collection includes performances by many of the artists on his previous releases, as well as new artists including Lanny Flowers, Jason Burke, and the Pop Dudes. In the meantime, Curry Cuts also released an album by pop maestro Brandon Schott, which was welcomed with open arms by the power pop community. Recently, Andrew and his Curry Cuts label released a brand new tribute album entitled White Lace and Promises, The Songs of Paul Williams. Now, regardless of when you first heard songs that were co-written by Paul Williams, they've certainly made an impact on all of our lives. From the interpretations of his songs recorded by Three Dog Night, The Monkees, The Carpenters, Barbara Streisand, and The Muppets, to his own recordings, featured on his solo albums, the soundtrack to Phantom of the Paradise, or with his band The Holy Mackerel, Paul Williams' songs weave a wonderful pattern in the tapestry of pop music. With White Lace and Promises, Andrew Curry has curated his most heartfelt tribute yet. I was lucky enough to chat with Andrew about White Lace and Promises, his label Curry Cuts, and all of his projects to date. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the highlights of our chat here 
in the blanket fort. chat about Why Lace and Promises, can you give us a little background leading up to the release of Drink a Toast to Innocence, a tribute to Light Rock? And how did you get involved in curating these tribute releases? Yeah, it's interesting. I I started this as as just a fan. I mean, I didn't know anything about how to put out music. I didn't have any insight into that. I was just a fan who started a Facebook page devoted to the music that I grew up calling light rock that sort of am radio stuff that was so big particularly in the late 70s that's when i was was listening to it things like ambrosia or little river band or england dan and john ford coley those kinds of artists and so i thought you know my friends and i used to sort of secretly share our affection for that song (laughs) for those kinds of songs when we were back in college and so i started a facebook page almost exclusively as a way to keep that up with my buddies, just to post old videos of silly 70s songs. Well, it, it sort of caught on in a way I didn't expect. I, I Before I knew it, there were five or 600 people who had liked the Monsters of Light Rock page that I started on Facebook. And I knew that I was going to have a hard time sustaining material on there if I just posted songs multiple times a day, because, you know, it's not an infinite number of songs that were in that genre. So I reached out to a couple of musicians that I'd become Facebook friends with and asked if they wouldn't mind doing some sort of, you know, bedroom concert where they pointed their computer's camera at themselves and recorded themselves doing these songs. And a, and a few of them were kind enough to do it. Well, I thought, well, this will be the way I sustain content on this page. I'll I'll keep getting musicians to agree to record these old songs. But then it struck me that it might even be a better idea rather than just having them point a computer camera at themselves strumming the guitar, that maybe I could convince five or six of them to actually record these things in an actual studio setting. And that's when I moved forward on it. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I didn't know what that process would involve. But when I reached out to, like I said, a handful of musicians agreed to it, and then it sort of snowballed from there. Drink a Toast to Innocence was a unique project because Light Rock was still a joke amongst the pretentious music critics, but it was actually really loved by the music fans. Were you worried that the release would be treated in some ways uh, mocking the original movement? Yeah, I I had a little bit of that trepidation. You know, the, the Yacht Rock videos that became so prominent in the early part of the 20th, 21st century were really funny, but were clearly making fun of the, the genre. I, I didn't want to be disrespectful to the music that I, really I grew up loving. I mean, that's what I grew up listening to. It was light rock and disco. People don't remember because people still talk about disco, but light rock was rivaling disco for dominance on the charts in the late seventies. So, you know, I knew there was a, an audience for these songs. I knew from the website that I started on Facebook, like I said. And so, yeah, I don't think any of the musicians came into this thinking that they were going to be making fun of anything. 
And, you know, I'm lucky that nobody approached it that way. Yeah, because in my opinion, it's, it's especially important that you and the artist have a high level of reverence towards the original material. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're getting into a situation where you're trying to be the coolest one in the room or you're winking at your audience, I don't think the music comes out well. Even if you've got talented people, if they're trying to show you how cool or funny or above it all they are, it, it just doesn't work. Spending all my nights, all my money going out on the town Doing anything just to get you off of my pleased with the overall reaction to the project from the listeners? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was it was beyond any expectations that I ever had. Every expectation I've ever had has been exceeded by the, the way people have embraced this stuff, the, the way people have been willing to collaborate with me, the way non-musicians who have worked in, in this field before have been willing to give me advice. You know, I think about guys like Bruce Brodeen or John Borak, who didn't know me from Adam. I mean, I was a nobody who reached out to them and both of them took a fair bit of time to talk me through the things I'd need to know, putting a compilation together, you know, that kind of work, that kind of help. If I hadn't had that, I'd, I don't know what I would have done. So yeah, I mean, the, the response from listeners has been terrific. The collaborative spirit among the people I've worked with has been, you know, remarkable. I've told John this, I think, in the past, but the, the truth is when I did Drink a Toast to Innocence, I was almost directly ripping off his bubblegum tribute that had come out about a decade before that. So, you know, most tributes are to single musicians or to bands. And I thought the idea of doing a genre tribute was great. And his is the, you know, the, the sort of gold standard in this thing. So, I, you know, it's not a exaggeration to say that I just sort of snuck his idea into my back pocket and turned it into my own. Since the release of the Light Rock album in 2013, the genre, like you said, has been rebranded as Yacht Rock, yet there's been a reappraisal of the music. Now, are you pleased to see that 
more people now have come to appreciate this music than ever before? Yeah, I mean, I've, it seems sort of inevitable to me. I mean, some of these songs are so melodic. They're so, you know, of course they're a product of their time and some of them are better than others. They're not all the gold standard. But yeah, I think I think when you listen to these songs, you can appreciate the craftsmanship and the talent involved in putting them out. They don't have to be the main thing that you listen to, but I think it would take a real curmudgeon not to acknowledge that, you know, these are solidly crafted songs that were due a bit of a reappraisal, whether it's by cover versions or the originals, which I think are, you know, doing great. They've got their own channel on Sirius XM, in fact. Now, your next project was Here Comes the Rain Again, The Second British Invasion. While 80s music is generally derided by critics, it still holds a place near and dear to people's hearts. Did the success of Drink a Toast fuel that excitement and that energy when putting together your next project? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I was, when I finished putting the Light Rock record together, um, I, you know, I had the bug for it at that point. I thought it'd be fun to do another one. And when I was researching the Light Rock record, I, I was very specific about the time period that I used. I, I sort of imagined that the Light Rock period ended as a real chart-dominating force in about 1982. And so when I was putting it together, I had that date in mind. And so I started thinking, well, what happened specifically that helped put an end to Light Rock as a, as a real chart force? And it didn't take too long to realize that the advent of MTV uh, really sort of hastened the demise of, you know, guys like Robbie Dupree and, and Randy Van Warmer were great musicians, but they weren't necessarily who you picture when you turn on MTV in the afternoon. So it, 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 so it, it seemed to me that a natural follow-up to the Light Rock record would be, what was it that, that sort of hastened the demise of Light Rock? And that was MTV. Now, I didn't just want to do a generic MTV record. So I thought, you know, well, what was big on MTV? And it seemed pretty clear that those British bands that you and I have talked about a lot were, were just Titanic. I mean, you, you couldn't turn on MTV in the early 80s without seeing five or six, sometimes in a row, British bands that just came to dominate the charts. So the, the transition from light rock to British invasion may have seemed odd to some people, but it was a really natural transition, I thought, when I was putting it all together. I know this much is true. us a great variety of music did you have 
guidelines for the artist when choosing the songs? Well, the, the 80s music that I was talking about, specifically, I was going for the top 40 side of the British Invasion. Now, there were all sorts of college bands that were great big here as well. Bands like The Smiths or, or The Cure or Aztec Camera or XTC. I love all those bands, but they were not the artists that I was specifically looking at. I was looking at, you know, your more Duran Duran, Culture Club, Eurythmics side of the British Invasion. And so once I had established that, I just came up with a, with a song list. You know, a lot of them were the big, massive hits of the era. Sometimes I like to sneak in ones that weren't necessarily gigantic MTV hits or top 40 hits. But for the most part, those were the bands that I was looking at. Now, once I get songs out to the musicians and have them choose them, I leave it entirely up to them how they decide they want to approach them, how they want to produce them. But the songs themselves are ones that I come up with uh, before that process even starts. By the way, Once this release was in your rearview mirror, was it difficult to choose the next project? Because obviously people are going to think, oh, he's going to go into the 90s now. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it, 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 difficult isn't the right word, but I didn't want to necessarily do entirely what was expected. Um, and so, yeah. yeah, I wanted to avoid just making it about the the next big genre on MTV or the next big genre that took over after the second British invasion. So, you know, people have called for a hair metal record or, a, a, you know, any other of the many genres that sort of cropped up after the second British invasion petered out a little bit. And those are all fun. And those are ideas that I kicked around and I'm still kicking around. But the, the truth is I, I didn't want to limit myself to just a little five year window of pop music as I had with my first two, compilations when I was putting together my third one. Well, Songs, Bond Songs was the next tribute project. What inspired that decision to pay tribute to the music of the James Bond films? Yeah, I, I guess what I had decided was that it, it, it fit on both ends of what I was trying to do. First, it was a, you know, like the second British Invasion, like, like the Light Rock record, it fit under one umbrella. I mean, it was, it, the concept was not hard to grasp. The Songs of James Bond but unlike those previous two, this was not going to cover just five years of music. So I could get a pretty wide variety of types of songs. You know, the James Bond songs have gone through a series of genres and types. They, they flirted with their, you know, alt rock in the late 90s and early 2000s. They had their sort of soft ballads in the 70s and early 80s. They had the big orchestral themes in the early 60s and mid 60s. So, you know, I could still work under a unifying theme, which is music from James Bond movies, while still touching on lots of different genres of music. So I thought that seemed like the, the right way to go. Instead of dealing with five or six years of music, I could deal with 50 or 60 years of music. And I think it added to a little, you know, a little more diversity of it.
songs themselves are iconic and not just linked to just personal childhood memories. They also are tied to images and films that have touched a generation of music fans. I, I would think that that project would be more daunting. Well, I tell you the, the hardest part of it. I came into it guns blazing thing. I'm going to do every single James Bond uh, song. And so the hardest part became if somebody decided that, you know, well, I'm not particularly interested in doing Never Say Never Again. Well, it's not like I can just then leave Never Say Never Again off. I have to find somebody to do that song. If somebody didn't want to do Hungry Like the Wolf, well, I, you know, I could find a different song for them to do. There are lots of second British invasion songs that would fit the bill. But if someone decides, you know, Goldfinger is not really working for me, well, I can't just say, okay, well, we'll just, we won't have Goldfinger on this record. So, you know, I, I painted myself into a corner that way coming out of the gate saying this is going to be every James Bond song, even the ones from Casino, the first Casino Royale and from Never Say Ever Again. But yeah, I had more than one occasion where a musician chose a song and then halfway through the process decided this song just isn't doing what I thought it was going to do. And I'm, I'm not sure I can do this one. And so in that sense, it was hard. And they, you know, every song had to be filled and, uh, <laughs> That's not as easy as it sounds. When you were young and your heart was an open book, you used to say, Live and let live. You know you did, you know you did, you know you did. But if this ever This brings us to White Lace and Promises, the songs of Paul Williams. What inspired you to tackle his massive back catalog of hits? Well, as you can probably deduce from the four records that I've put together, a lot of what I have put together is based on my own memories of music growing up. Uh, the, the light rock was the stuff that I first became familiar with, first became aware of uh, as a kid listening to music. Uh, the second British invasion was the stuff that I was buying with my own money for the first time. James Bond was obviously, those were the movies that as a little kid, I, I just waited anxiously for each new James Bond movie to come out. Paul Williams is another figure from my youth, from my childhood, who always fascinated me. I mean, you, you probably remember as well. He was on TV all the time. And when you're eight or nine years old and you, and you see him on TV, and you sort of just think, wow, this guy's clearly a famous person, but he doesn't look like a famous person. He doesn't look like a conventional movie star. So, I, you know, I always had him in the back of my mind as somebody, this fascinating sort of aberration of my childhood. Like, how does this guy who is funny and tells funny stories and is charming on Johnny Carson, he's clearly worth being on television, but how did he get on television? I just never quite understood it. What is he? famous for well it was years later when i realized that he had written you know 50 songs that i knew 
growing up, whether they were by the Carpenters or Three Dog Night, I guess, especially the Muppets, which the Muppet movie came out when I was nine, I believe. And that was, you know, a seminal movie for a little kid at that time. And so when I was 13 or 14, and I realized that Paul Williams was the one who had helped write all these songs, he's always just been in the back of my mind as somebody that I've paid attention to since then. Although he's had more hits than most artists of his generation, like Neil Sedaka and Neil Diamond, he's often overlooked when people chat about great songwriters like Harry Nilsson or Gilbert O'Sullivan. Why do you think that some critics don't think it's cool to like Paul Williams? Well, I I've thought about that, and I, I can't help but wonder if his pop culture ubiquity sort of made it easy to dismiss him. Here's this guy who tells self-effacing jokes on the Donnie and Marie show. If he doesn't take himself seriously, why am I obligated to take him seriously? Well, I mean, and, and I think that that infests a certain kind of music fan or music listeners way of thinking. And I, I think it's this impulse to be cooler than the room. It's undeniable that the songs that Paul Williams helped write in the seventies, are as much a part of that soundtrack of that decade as just about anybody. Now, you know, you can argue that Robert Plant and Jimmy Page had a more long-lasting effect with Led Zeppelin, but I'll tell you, I've listened to Rainy Days and Mondays a lot more than I've listened to Stairway to Heaven in the last 20 years, and I'm not particularly bothered to say that. You know, that doesn't bother me to admit that. And so I've, I'm hoping that as time passes and people get a bit more appreciation that other people will feel the same way about that. Some people always complain that their life is too short so they hurry it along. Their worries drive them insane but they still go along for the ride. collaborated with guys like Roger Nichols, Kenny Asher. In regards to his career, is there a specific time period that you feel that he was at his best? I mean, I personally think that he remained consistent throughout because he was always pursuing new musical avenues and ways of expressing himself creatively. Yeah, absolutely. I think I fall into that camp as well. Now, a lot of my knowledge of his music is sort of after the fact. So those Carpenter songs that are so essential to that decade, I probably didn't start listening to them until, you know, 10 years after they had all become big hits. So I, I lean on what I was first exposed to, which, like I said, was probably the Muppet movie soundtrack. Now, you know, I, I think I've read interviews with Paul about his work with Jim Henson and the Muppets, and I just I, I think that that is a underrated period. I think it's easy to dismiss as children's music or as you know non-essential. Kermit the Frog playing a banjo. How seriously am I meant to take this? But those are 
solid songs um, that meant a lot to an entire generation of people growing up then. And I think it's hard to undervalue that sort of stuff. I think he's an important figure. And I, I think I'm, I'm arbitrary in picking the late 70s stuff, but that's what I was first exposed to. And everything I came to was sort of after that point. Was it easy to get artists on board for this one? Because Paul Williams has definitely written music that has spoken to all of us during every phase of our lives, you know, from the innocence and charm of our childhood to the emotional highs and lows of our adulthood. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I wondered about this. I wondered if he was just going to be some uh, sort of trivial pursuit answer for some of the people that I reached out to. And when I originally put the word out that I was doing this project, um, I, I bet I got 15 uh, people asking about it within 24 hours, which, I mean, that, that may not mean much to your listeners, but that's a lot. A lot of people came out of the woodwork to ask if there was space available on this Paul Williams tribute. I wondered if this was going to be my most uh, niche project. Those other ones were sort of big, you know, James Bond, that's 60 years of movies or, or the second British invasion. Everybody knows Duran Duran and boy George, but I wondered how many people would, would remember Paul Williams. Well, the, the truth is musicians all know him. They all remember him. And it was as easy to populate the artist roster for this album as for anything I've ever done. Day after day, I must face a world of strangers Where I don't belong, I'm not that strong It's nice to know that there's someone I can turn to Who will always care, you're always there Williams music belongs to all generations, you know, from grandparents to grandkids. So that reverence is definitely needed and the songs need to be treated with respect while also allowing the artists to add their own unique personalities to the mix. Did you have certain guidelines? Because, you know, he has a lot of material, uh, stuff going back to the Holy Mackerel in the 60s. Did you try to sort of keep it within a certain time frame or you just gave the artists uh, carte blanche? Well, I, for all of my projects, I come up with a song list ahead of time, and I wanted to touch on all the eras that you just mentioned. So I wanted to do the Holy Mackerel, and I wanted to do uh, the, the early 70s Carpenter's Three Dog Night stuff. I wanted to resist turning it into all Carpenters, all Muppets. Um, but then I started thinking about it and I started thinking, you know, these are important songs that a lot of people know and care a lot about. So it felt sort of arbitrary not to include them just because I had two other Carpenter songs, you know, and why would I not put, I won't last today without you just because I've got rainy days and Mondays on there. And so I loosened that rule. Originally I thought maybe I'll do one Carpenters and one Muppets and one three dog night and, you know, as it evolved and as more musicians made themselves available and indicated that they were interested, 
I sort of loosened my my rules on that. And and I think to the benefit of the of the record, because, you know, I wanted to get songs on there that were known, but I also wanted to focus on some songs that maybe weren't as well known, like The Holy Mackerel or like solo songs of his from albums that weren't recorded then by other artists. Um, and so I didn't have a time frame in mind, but I did have a list of songs that I was working from. Now, not all the songs made it. I, I wanted to include even some of his more recent stuff that he did with Daft Punk. Um, but, but nobody uh, chose that song. So, but I think what we got is a great balance of the big expected hits, but with also some of those smaller ones that I think are going to be discoveries for some people. If people didn't realize it before, White Lace and Promises are going to remind them that Paul has co-written just, you know, like you said, Three Dog Night Carpenters, Barbra Streisand, Muppet, Staff Punk. I mean, not to mention penning the lyrics for the Love Boat theme. When putting this together, were you hoping to maybe reintroduce or introduce his talents to people who have basically taken his work for granted. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what all these records are meant to do. Um, but you know, I, I don't want to make them pure nostalgia plays. I don't just want to be elbowing people in the ribs and saying, remember this song. I want them to rediscover these things. And I want them, I want these records to appeal to not only fans of Paul Williams, but fans of, you know, Chris Price or Brandon Schott, who are musicians on the record. I want this to be something where a person who likes the Davenports, but not might not know much about Paul Williams, can hear the Davenports covering Evergreen and think, oh, yeah, that song, that was a massive song back in the day. And here's a great band covering it today. So I, I, I always approach these things wanting to appeal to fans of the genre being covered and fans of the artists doing the cover. himself is aware of the project are you pleased that he's been so supportive were you sort of nervous about that at the beginning here's the truth i went into this never imagining he would have any awareness of this at all um i thought it would be great if i could send him a copy if somebody could find a way for me to get him a copy but i never went into this thinking i gotta hear what paul williams thinks about this and then someone who was on the record put him in touch with me totally unexpected. I opened my email one day and there's an email from Paul Williams. I thought, come on, this can't be. And it was as nice and gracious and sweet as, I mean, you know, this is an Academy Award winning songwriter writing to a guy who's, you know, <laughs> living in Portland, Oregon, without a hope in the world of ever talking to Paul Williams. Well, it, he reached out. He was great. He's heard tracks from the from the record and was nothing but supportive. 
I've sent him a copy of the full record. I've been waiting for the holiday fervor to sort of die down before I follow up with him. I never want to seem as though I'm, you know, trying to bug him too much. Um, but I know he's gotten the record and I, you know, he, he couldn't have been nicer about it. He is the songwriter songwriter. I mean, to the, to the extent that he's the president of ASCAP. So, I mean, the songwriting is clearly something that has been his life's work and continues to be. So for him to have taken even the 10 minutes, it probably took him to write that email for him to have done that without any original com- communication from me. It just touched me in a way that, you know, he probably isn't even aware of. Well, now that White Lace and Promises has been released, have you been thinking about your next Career Cuts project? I, I, it's funny that you ask that because without fail, I've always had my next idea sort of brewing uh, before uh, the, the other one has even come out. For example, Paul Williams was well in mind as I was working on James Bond. I knew that Paul Williams was going to be next. So well before James Bond was even released, I knew that Paul Williams was going to be my next record. And I have no clue what my next record is going to be as of this moment. So that may change in a week. It may change in a year. Uh, but as of this moment, I genuinely don't have any ideas brewing in my head, which I I'm, might have been troubled by in previous years, but I'm not bothered by it. I, I think if the right idea pops into my head, it's better that I waited for it rather than trying to arbitrarily find something. Where can Blanket Fort listeners purchase White Lace and Promises? It is widely available. Um, it is at my Bandcamp page, which is just Curry Cuts. If you go to Bandcamp.com and search for Curry Cuts, it'll take you right to it. But it's also available at you know your standard CD Baby, uh, Amazon, all those usual places. And I'm sure plenty of your uh, listeners are streamers, and it's at all those usual sites as well, Apple Music, Spotify, uh, Pandora. So if you're up for holding a copy in your hands, if you like to, like Spaz and I do, if you like holding the record in your hands, Bandcamp's probably your best bet because I'm literally the person who's putting them in the mail and sending them out to you. Um, But like I said, it's available at a variety of other places too. Have you been half asleep? And have you heard voices? I've heard them calling my name. this episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. I'd like to thank my special guest, Andrew Curry, for stopping by. Remember to check out White Lace and Promises, the songs of Paul Williams, available now. Also check out other Curry Cuts titles. 
And remember to go back and listen to all the great original Paul Williams recordings. You won't regret it. Smell you later.